welcome to Rising. Happy almost Thanksgiving. Uh, Brianna has decided to start the holiday a bit early, so I'm joined today instead by Amisha Cross. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Super excited. Great to have you with us. All right, well, let's get straight to the news. Uh, we actually do have some major breaking developments in the Middle East. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a temporary four-day ceasefire and a, also a hostage swap deal. So 50 women and children hostages in Hamas custody will be released in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and people under the age of 18 that are currently held by the IDF. The U.S. believes that there are more children and women beyond the 50 that Hamas has identified for release. Meanwhile, the Israel-Hamas truce is slated to begin at 10 a.m. local time this Thursday. An Israeli official told CNN hostages will reportedly be transferred between 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. Now there is an option for the pause in fighting to last as long as 10 days, but Israeli officials believe that seems unlikely. Prime Minister Netanyahu has said for every additional 10 hostages who are released, there will be an additional day of a pause in the fighting. Mm. Well, now, per reporting in Politico, some Biden administration officials are quietly celebrating the temporary ceasefire agreement as proof that the president's Middle East strategy is actually working. But others are pumping the brakes on that idea that it's vindication, one of the officials told Politico shortly before the deal was finalized. There's more to do. Joining us now to discuss everything going on is retired lieutenant colonel at Defense Priorities and host of Daniel Davis Deep Dive on YouTube. Daniel Davis, so great to have you with us. Thanks, Robbie. Always good to be here. All right. So what do you make of this ceasefire? Um, obviously, there have been ceasefires in the past between Israel and Hamas um, that have ended um, rather swiftly. Um, some would argue they were in a state of ceasefire when October 7th uh, began. So how excited would, should we be that, I mean, obviously, at least there's a, a, a pause to the really yeah. horrific images coming out of Gaza. Um, but, but what should we expect? Well, the Israeli government is very explicit in saying this is not a ceasefire. This is just a humanitarian pause and a cessation of fighting expressly to give a safe passage for hostages to be exchanged. And and they, uh, uh, Netanyahu was was emphatic when he announced this that this does not mean the war is over. We're going to continue fighting. We're going to continue waging this war until we have completely destroyed Hamas. Uh, so they have no intention of slowing down. Lieutenant Colonel, do you believe that this is uh, strategically a wise decision? Um, is Hamas going to ratchet up its firing power before the pause starts? What do you see as some of the ways that this could possibly um, only make things more tough going forward? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's going to make things more tough. I, I hear a lot of people talking about that. And in fact, there was apparently a lot of debate uh, within the Israeli war government to, to whether or not they should do this. I, I believe Benny Gantz was completely against it at first and then finally came around to it, claiming initially that, you know, this would be a benefit to, to Hamas. Look, the, the balance of power is so dramatically out of balance in the favor of Israel that, that a pause like this won't have any impact at all on the outcome of the war because Hamas is hermetically sealed in there. They can't get any more supplies for their war effort. They can't get any reinforcements. They can't get medical support for their wounded soldiers. I mean, they got nothing, and this is not going to change that. It's also an opportunity for the Israeli Defense Forces to consolidate their positions, to get their stuff in order, to get more supplies. 
uh, front loaded for this. I, I mean, I can just tell you from my personal combat experience that sometimes these pauses are very useful to us to get ready for the next phase, and there will definitely be a next phase. So uh, obviously, you know, here in, in the U.S. context, um, President Biden's uh, support for Israel, you know, ironclad support. We offer them, we, we give them so much money, and uh, he's maybe quietly kind of tried to leverage Netanyahu and the Israeli government to concentrate on killing fewer civilian hostages. But of course, you know, we see the images coming out, the 10, 11, 12, 13,000 dead. It's having an effect on Biden's approval in the Democratic Party, particularly among young Democrats um, who are, are very skeptical uh, of this, of the, of the war effort and think perhaps the, the cost is, is uh, cannot be, be borne compared to what's being accomplished. And also, I, you know, I, I think you know, for those of us who remember how Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya went down, there's some question about, is Israel trying to accomplish regime change here? I fully accept that in an ideal world, uh, Hamas not being in charge of the Gaza Strip anymore would be best for everyone, both Palestinians and Israelis. But are so many people going to die in pursuit of this goal that it actually emboldens more terrorist activity, not just against Israel, but theoretically the United States? Yeah, Robbie, I think you're dead on. That, that's exactly the issue. One of the big things I'm, I'm most concerned about is that in, in their understandable anger to, to get retribution and justice for the Israeli civilians that were murdered on, on the 10th, uh, on, on October the 7th, is that they go too far and that they get too emotional that they actually don't even care how many Israel, uh, Palestinian civilians are killed in the process of going after Hamas. And, and you just can't do that because that could not only undercut the Western support for Israel, which it's already starting to fray some pretty significant uh, uh, deterioration throughout the Western world, certainly not just the United States, and it's being more and more sustained. It's also exacerbating the anger within the uh, the Arab world. And, and we see that there's more and more pressure from Hezbollah to enter into the war. They've actually increased in the last few days their attacks into Israel. You have Yemen now coming in trying to take uh, some of the ships that they're in the sea and that, uh, you know, to go against Israel. They fired some missiles into it. American troops have been under attack from Iran-based groups, Khatib Hezbollah and some others in both Iraq and in Syria. And all of those things continue to exacerbate this. And they're all primarily focused on the fact that too many Palestinian people are getting killed. And we're talking thousands upon thousands. It's not just a few. It's it's an egregious number. And they haven't even gotten into the more populated areas of the South yet. So that number could spike even higher. And it's very uncertain how uh, what the results could be. But I think that it would be bad both for Israel and definitely for the United States and the region. Right. And it, because it, it frankly, it doesn't feel like that they're close to accomplishing the goal of rooting out Hamas if that's what they're trying to do. They And they've, you know, they fired on. Uh, hospitals and schools and other things saying that those are, you know, Hamas is there and they're keeping hostage and that sort of thing. And I, I think, you know, you can accept that and still say, but they, they haven't captured, they've killed certainly numbers of members of Hamas, but there's a lot more still to, to go. Like, they're not even close to the project if what they're really trying to do is wipe out that group entirely. And there, there are going to be a lot more civilian casualties to come. And it doesn't seem like there's enough U.S. Um, willingness to go along with that. Yeah, then I, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the more this goes, I mean, it's not just the political damage this is doing to President Biden or the Democratic Party, but it's it's the entire Western support because, man, you know, these these images coming out of Al-Shifa Hospital where, where you had, you know, all these little infant babies that, that were prematurely born that, that had to be evacuated to Egypt because the hospitals had 
been made uh, inoperable. Uh, you know, when they, they and of course these you, you see entire city blocks being leveled to the ground. I mean, that doesn't look surgical to me. That doesn't look, you know, uh, proportional to to many regular people. They're saying, hey, I, I get it that what Hamas did was horrific and should be punished. But this seems like collective punishment for the Palestinian people, not just Hamas. And the farther this goes, the more the the support's going to be undercut. And I'm telling you, it could also finally put enough pressure on maybe Hezbollah to attack in from the north. I, we don't know, but I know that there's a lot of pressure for that. And uh, this just is going to go the wrong way. And just from the morality of it, uh, I, I can just say that I think that we need to put more pressure on the Israeli government to not do the things that we tell other regimes around the world not to do. So for our own moral support. Lieutenant Colonel, um, just at, you know, as we wrap this up, I really wanted to delve in into whether or not you think it's actually possible to root out Hamas. Because on the one hand, obviously, it's a terrorist organization. It also is an ideology. When we are speaking towards and looking towards military interventions for terrorist organizations, it's not like fighting your, your average military group or your nation state. This is entirely different. Uh, the United States didn't technically root out al-Qaeda. We've been trying to root out terrorist organizations for a long time, and that has not been effective. Yep. At what point in and how does that leverage actually look? And is this a possible winnable goal? Yeah, that, that's such a great question. And, and you don't have to look very far to see our own experience, not just with Al-Qaeda, but with the Taliban. We, we kept saying, you know, for year after year after year, we just need to put a little bit more pressure. We need a little bit more troops. We need to kill a little bit more of them. And then they'll see the light. And of course, they never saw the light. Not only did it not succeed, every year the number of Taliban increased and the terrorist threat continued to increase until we finally withdrew. And only then did the threat to our troops go down because now we're not there to be attacked anymore. And, you know, we're still able to keep ourselves safe even without troops there as, a, as an aside. But the bigger issue and much bigger here in the, the Gaza Strip is that the more Palestinian people that you kill, the more people that you're going to gain against Israel. If people thought that the Palestinians were had a lot of hatred for Israel before this, just imagine when half of their city has been wiped out and tens of thousands of people have been killed and wounded. I mean, however many Hamas people you take, there's going to be someone else to rise up and, and want to resist, uh, you know, this occupation and now then this destruction of their way of life. So this is not going to help Israel. I've been saying, I'll just finish with this, that uh, Netanyahu's objective is to bring peace to Israel by destroying Hamas. This is almost surely going to take more peace away from Israel because there's no aftermath short of annihilating all the Palestinian people. Mm. Terrible to contemplate. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Black voters are flocking to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., according to a recent New York Times Siena College survey. It found RFK Jr. polling at 28% among black voters in battleground states, compared to 50% for Joe Biden and 13% for Donald Trump. That's in a three-way hypothetical matchup. Left-leaning commentators of MSNBC's Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, brushed off Biden's weakening grip on the black vote. Writing off the current polls is merely a snapshot. Here's a clip from the morning show yesterday. Take Let's talk about these polls that taken a year out uh, from the election uh, that you know, I would say don't really mean anything on who's going to ultimately win. But uh, if I were... What are they, a snapshot if, 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 into... Snapshot of where people are right now. Uh, but if I were uh, on the Biden campaign or any campaign that got these type of polls, 
I'd love them because I would be using them mm. to get everybody working from, from top to bottom. Love it or not, Biden's camp is going to have to double their efforts to make up for lost ground with black voters who report being disillusioned with the president. Let's watch. Now, now we have tax coming down to uh, programs and, and different things that are going to be cut directly from mm -hmm. our community to pay for mm -hmm. illegals. Mm -hmm. All right. It, there's a problem with that. We, we're going to see a overwhelmingly yeah. amount of people that we have not seen in 30 years come out to vote. All right. People are being educated on the voter registration piece, how to change their party affiliation. Question number 14 on their voter registration form. And people are walking away from so the plantation true. of the Democratic Party once and for all. Hmm. So it's funny to hear Joe and Mika say like, oh, yeah, it's a snapshot. Biden can't must love these poll numbers because it's firing them up to work harder. I mean, the poll, fine, you can just say their poll numbers, whatever. Um, they're very bad in the key battleground states that are going to decide the election. Um, so there's a lot of dissatisfaction within the Democratic Party on how Israel has been handled. And you hear from um, voters, including some minority voters, um, who are really not thrilled with the job Biden has done so far. So do you think it's as the the... The landscape is as depressing as all that? I think the landscape is depressing. Uh, black voters and younger voters are the base of the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden's polling numbers right now are bad. There's no way to flip it, remix it, or turn it in any other way. But I do think being a year out of an election cycle points to a few things. One, polls a year out of an election, a national election, don't really tell us that much in general. They've been wrong in multiple elections in the past, um, up to and including probably, uh, we, we saw it with Trump. We saw it with Biden um, in, in, this, in his first race. We saw it with, we've basically seen them be wrong consistently within every election a year out, with the exception of George H. George George Walker Bush's. Um, but everybody, everyone else has been incorrect. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something to be said about that. A lot can happen between now and next November. We didn't know two months ago that Israel was going to be fired on. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> obviously, there are things that can happen within that time frame. But I think that for Joe Biden, one of the harshest things he has to come to grips with, one is the um, the issue of Republican governors sending migrants to, uh, to major cities in this country. New York being one. We've seen the backlash that the mayor there is getting. Chicago, my hometown being one. We've seen the backlash the mayor is getting there as well. Um, and a lot of it is coming from the black community, mm. partially because where are migrants going to be housed? In many cases, they are housed within communities that are already not receiving um, the funds that they need to, historically divested communities, communities that are already holding on by a thread, communities where their centers, um, their youth centers and other centers are being transported into um, migrant shelters. And it's pushing out black youth. There's a lot of frustration at the idea that budgets are being given towards a group that is not American, but also one that is not and has not uh, paid taxes here. So I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot of frustration there, be it right or wrong. We just recently saw a Cardi B video come out where she went live and basically castigated not only the president, but also the mayor of New York and um, pretty much laid out what I think a lot of Americans, specifically black Americans, are feeling right now. And this administration has to work through those things because I don't believe that there's going to be a large group of black people that are going to all of a sudden vote for RFK Jr. Nothing on the ground tells us that that's true. But what 
on the ground is true is that many black voters are thinking about sitting Staying this one out. Home. And if they sit this election out, that's essentially voting for whomever the Republican yeah. nominee happens to be. And right now, it looks like it'll be Trump. Yeah, um, we talked about the Cardi B video uh, yesterday. Brianna and I did. Uh, viewers should watch, go look at that on our YouTube page if you haven't seen it. Um, and, right, and she explicitly references exactly what you're describing, um, the, the, the services, the resources for, uh, for the underprivileged community, for minority voters, um, those resources being transferred easily overseas, right? The, you, there's always more money to spend on Ukraine, on Israel, on, on, problem, on foreign policy, everywhere the money is found. But uh, the, the perception among a lot of people is that our infrastructure is crumbling, that people are not being taken care of, that the economy is very bad and has been mismanaged. Um, inflation, less of a problem now, but it was a problem, you know, a, a, year, a year and a half ago and could be again. Um, the, just this perception that the, the job of overseeing the country is not, is not being done well by, by a president who is very old, is perceived to, is, is you can't hide the fact that he seems very old he's going to get older every year um, I think that's really hurting him and, uh, and and there's just a lot of frustration about all that now it is true at the same time that the Democratic Party has done well in the in the midterms they did well in the election we just had um, there's something enduring about Biden that maybe doesn't get captured in the poll numbers or some of the attitudes about him you hear online in other places, um, or, the, or the Republicans have just not presented a very compelling alternative vision or their own dysfunction. I think it's a mix of both. Seems that, like <laughs> that way, but, uh, also but Biden is vulnerable if Republicans... On, and Republicans consistently running on uh, abortion restrictions. is just a, a gift to the Democratic Party. Well, every now and then they detour from that to run on how they actually won the previous election, another really popular <laughs> issue that people really want to hear a lot about. No, Republicans I think people uh, want to hear from Republicans on, on a lot of subjects, on, on our crime being uh, pretty bad in a lot of places, including D.C., um, the, the school systems not serving um, people well. There was a lot of frustration about the COVID response, obviously, in a lot of blue places. Um, that has faded a bit from memory, um, which is like like... Thankfully, from a policy perspective, very eager to, I am, to part ways with um, the blue city policies of the pandemic, but um, it's not serving Republicans well now because we're, we have moved past. I think if we were in the midst of still having a battle over COVID stuff, honestly, I think Ron DeSantis would have done, uh, be doing better even against Donald Trump, who the, the only time you can get his own audience to boo him is when it gets brought up that, well, he was the one who fired, hired Dr. Fauci and he was the one who just shut down everything initially. He said he had no choice, but that's not popular among Republicans and frankly, a lot among, very popular among a lot of independent people, which is part of RFK Jr.'s um, support. But it, this three-way matchup will be fascinating because RFK Jr. is polling, you know, above 20 percent, which is not, it's been a long time since we've had uh, a, a case where one of the someone outside the major two parties is doing that well. And it's going to be a totally I question different dynamic. This, I, I question a lot of polls at this point. Um, yeah. But I question this one specifically as it relates to black voters, because the most consistent and strongest polling of black voters has come from black polling organizations like Hit Strategies. Mm -hmm. When you look at Hit Strategies polling, he's not even on the radar of the majority yeah. of black voters uh, in, in the primary states. And I think that that makes a difference. In addition to, again, I, there are a lot of voters who are very frustrated with the system, very frustrated with um, the, the 
the pandemic recovery, who even though you can acknowledge um, the infrastructure, the infrastructure development plan, the, the work that the president has done to decrease the cost of prescription drugs, particularly insulin for those who are on Medicare, these things matter. Mm -hmm. um, however, people's pocketbook issues also matter. They're watching uh, crisis in their schools. They're watching rising housing costs. They're watching being pushed out of their communities. Um, and I think that there is a, a level set of frustration that has to be understood by this administration. Also that um, you can't take the black vote for granted because if black people sit out, he's done. And I think he yes. recognizes that. So these polls, be it you know whether they are factual or not, and that kind of hinges on a lot of things, it does put a laser focus on him specifically with black voters and younger voters. Those are the voters who are going to make or break this election cycle. Republicans aren't worried about getting them because they never get them anyway. However, if they sit back, that is a win for Republicans regardless. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. And we'll have more rising right after this. Dark days are ahead if MSNBC's Joe Scarborough is to be believed. The Morning Joe host claimed that Donald Trump would imprison or execute his political opposition if he won re-election. Here's some of what he had to say. If he is voted into office, then a lot of these people that are talking about literal or figurative or whatever the hell they're saying, you're going to look like idiots uh, because he will do he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Scarborough's dire prognostication comes on the heels of recent comments by Trump pledging to root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and radical left thugs in America and comparing his political opposition to vermin. Meanwhile, Donald Trump issued a hearty congratulations to libertarian Argentinian president-elect Javier Malay. Let's watch that. A very special congratulations to Javier Malay on a great race for president of Argentina. The whole world was watching, and I am very proud of you. You will turn your country around and truly make Argentina great again. Congratulations. Oh, that's nice. Um, so, okay, the, the hyperbole, look, you don't have to like Trump. There's a lot I don't like about Trump. I've never been a particular fan or supporter. Um, I, I wish he had um, followed through on more of the commitments that he laid out on the foreign policy front, um, but whatever. But he's not, he's, not going to, he's not going to execute his political opponents. Like, this is just getting so out of hand. And it's just, it's funny when they accuse him of being the most dangerous demagogue authority imprisoning people while they are in the midst right now of trying to imprison him, going through the legal process, you know, based on the election stuff that he did and whatever, they're making their case and it's playing out in the criminal system and that's fine, but like, that's just, that's like how it works. So I, I find it so ironic. I mean, it, it is extraordinary, I think, for the, largely to be trying to, um, to, to criminally charge a president largely based on things he said that weren't true and that he shouldn't have done, but largely speech. And they're doing that. It's unprecedented. And they're saying he is the one so far outside the norm. Uh, I just don't buy it. Well, 
trying to circumvent the American election process, um, radically alter our democracy into something that benefits him because he only believes in democracy if democracy means he wins every time, um, in addition to essentially putting a target on the backs of black poll workers in Georgia, it's kind of a big deal. Um, these women were afraid to go outside. They were being threatened at grocery stores. There were literally people waiting for them. Well, um, him, him being they charged, him. They him being him charged hundreds of times in multiple jurisdictions across the country is, is a really big deal. That's something that is unprecedented for anyone, with much less the president of the United States. But I think that what we're seeing here, I, I agree with you in part. Uh, execute was a little bit of a strong term. I'm not, you know, down with Jar Joe Scarborough on that one. Um, but it, this is a very interesting part in our point in our nation's history, where you have a former president who has literally threatened every opponent. Um, from, from the left to the right to those who have also um, spoken out against him who actually used to work on his campaign, even his former attorney. Um, he's, he's threatening everybody and their mama, and it, up to and including jurors and judges themselves. It is a wild process where he is willing to get rid of, um, of, of, of our democratic processes, but also organizations of prosecution. He wants to strip the DOJ. He wants to limit the powers, uh, the, the powers that check the power of the president's office purposely. That is a dictatorial, that is a dictatorial stance. Um, we talked about the authoritarian slide in this country for two and a half decades, and now we have just slid directly into it. President Trump, former President Trump wants that. He wants to incentivize power within himself and only him. He praises dictators. He coddles dictators. He uses the language of Hitler. He uses the language of Mein Kampf. He uses the language of those who are absolutely fine with not only not having democracies, but actually destroying democracies across the globe. Well, OK, but compared to Joe Biden, who just had Xi Jinping, who is a dictator here for a conference, but we're trying to have better relations with China, right? And then he and then he calls him a dictator, like almost right in front of him. Like how boneheaded is that? Yes, Trump. Trump says nice things about right. There are, are they're dictators, but it's a diplomatic role. So for all the ideas that he's like so abnormal or so insane to me, just don't don't pass muster. Is, isn't it insane to get into like deliberate confrontations with other superpowers and have fraught relationships with them? Trump was trying to pal around with everyone. That can be a good thing. Um, on some of the other stuff, you agree. Look, I, again, I'm not a defender of Trump. I think a lot of the things he said were inane, especially about the election. Um, but you know, he's taking on like, we we. we it, it is similarly authoritarian, in my view, just to like yield all power and authority to the permanent federal bureaucracy, whether it be DOJ or DHS or the State Department or the IRS or the FBI or anyone else. We should be governed by the person we elect, the people we elect to govern us. That was Trump. He did win the first time. And uh, and it is it is OK in my book for then the elected political leader to try to exercise some control over the, the permanent federal bureaucracy, which which was after him from the start and has used all of these stupid things, admittedly stupid things he said about the election in order to ensnare and get rid of him. So I don't know, you know, this weaponization, um, the, the idea that like he's weaponized. I mean, I, of course, he's. He's done plenty of unethical things. Not a fan. Didn't vote for him. Wouldn't, wouldn't choose him again. But, uh, but they have come after him um, with, with a level of, of, of power and, and, and malice with, without respect for due process and freedom of speech in a way that I find concerning and, frankly, I think is more likely to end up violating ordinary Americans' um, free speech and civil liberties rights is enshrining this spying bureaucracy um, that is out to get you for, for political protesting and anything else. I mean, Trump's own officials, people who he appointed during his administration, 
are speaking against many of the things that he did there, yeah. up to and including the mapping out of how to steal an election. People. So, I, I'm like, oh. you, know, you know, we have to recognize that our democracy only stands strong as long as we protect it. And we had in him a former president who was willing to engage in things that were not only not protectionism of our democracy, but were a direct affront to it and the Constitution. So, he absolutely should be prosecuted for those things. And threatening those who are prosecuting him while he was in the process of trying to not only steal the election, but uh, best power within himself in a way that he could never be removed, I think is something that is very important. Yeah, but it—right, this is the pro-democracy crowd. I'm hearing you. But at some point, isn't, like, preventing the former president from running again, is that not itself a challenge to— Democracy itself. I mean, you know, something I don't like think he's being 45 percent or more of this country voted for him, supports him. He has millions of people who want to vote for him. Um, you know, he has to be able to. In some of these trials, right? He was because of the the gag order. They, they were they were trying to stop him from being able to criticize Mike Pence, who who, who was running against him for the nomination. I think from, uh, from being able to, to threaten, and part of it is because well, part of it's beyond Donald Trump. So I, I agree with you. I think that some of the some of the free speech as it relates to his targeting of a political opponent, specifically in an election where their names are actually also in the election, yeah. is a little bit weird. Um, however, it, more of that is because of his base, because he's literally said things online, he said things on social media, he said things on Truth Social and wherever the hell else he talks, and it incites people to commit violent acts. And they are trying to mitigate that in as much as they can. He might not have said, hey, go and attack this person. But yeah. you literally have people who are repeating hook, line, and sinker the things that he has said and the acts that come out of that. And now that he's in a trial process, there are rules of the court. You cannot threaten people who are speaking. You cannot threaten witnesses. You cannot threaten the judge. That is how that works in this country, whether you're a former president or whether you're you and I who have never sat in that seat. Nobody is above the law in that sense. And this just goes to show that this is how the justice system works. You can't threaten witnesses. And if the witness happens to be former Vice President Pence, guess what? He's still a witness. Well, you can't threaten. And you're right. He has to follow the rule of law. And there are separate rules. It's not the First Amendment. If you're under a criminal proceeding, the judge gets to set some rules on your conduct and behavior. Obviously, you're right about that. Um, I mean, he should still be able to, he, you're right, he shouldn't be able to organize Violent attack. I mean, you can't do that anyway. That does violate the First Amendment. Um, are some of the things he says threatening and improper and within the scope of the judge to limit? Probably. Um, are some of them just criticism, like calling, you know, what, what do we read here? They're vermin, they're, they're you know, whatever other nutty stuff he's saying. They're radical, communist, Marxist, fascist. I don't know. That's threatening. That's, again, it's hyperbole, but it's, uh, it's the kind of colorful language he is known for. And if you don't like it, I you think should, it's, I think it's a time that we have to be. Him and not vote for him. The Marxist, fascist, socialist, whatever like, that that he's been saying that for decades. Yeah. It's more so vermin. At, at this point in America's history, where we are literally engaging in uh, support of and trying to protect the Israeli people. We know what that term means. We know who most recently used it in a very derogatory term towards Jews. It is the time frame in which he used it. Now, granted, he wasn't talking about Jews when he used it in, in, in former President Trump. However, it draws a lot of ire from people who are currently uh, under attack. And I think that that has to be recognized by somebody who wants, who is running for leader of the free world. Nothing that the Democrats are doing or or nothing that the Biden campaign or anybody else has done can prevent Donald Trump from running, first and foremost. He's running. He's light years ahead of all of his Republican opponents. He's not going to show up to any debate. Quite frankly, he doesn't have to. If I was him, I wouldn't either. If I'm 40-plus percentage points ahead of everyone else, showing up to a debate is a waste of my time. None of this is stopping him. 
Yeah. Right, and it, it shouldn't. Well, then we agree on that. It shouldn't. He should be able to run for president. He, if he's the choice of Republicans, so be it. And if he ends up being the president again, so be it. Um, I, I, am, I am concerned that his ability to effectively campaign and speak on his behalf has been limited by the judges at some of these trials. But look, if they, they have every right to charge him and they can hold him accountable for, uh, I think most likely he's doomed in Georgia, where they have more specific, um, uh, you know, they've charged other people and it's, it's there, there are the actions case, taken yeah. by those people that will reflect badly on him. But, um, but I mean, the best thing to do is just to defeat him at the ballot box. If you don't like Trump, right, is, is, to, is to vote for somebody else, is, is to defeat him because he's, he's never, because as you, I mean, I think some in the Democratic, obviously this is a lot of people, diverse people. I think some in the Democratic coalition or the pro-democracy coalition imagine they don't agree with you. They think we can get rid of Trump by charging him with enough stuff, and that's how we stop him. Not actually at the ballot box, but by but by so consuming him with these um, these trials of varying legitimacy is is the way we get rid of him, and that's not true. And it's a, and if that and if that is a strategy that some people and I would argue that'd be a very small scope of people would try to employ, um, clearly it also would not be working. Again, former President Trump had and you you noted this had the most votes of any Republican who ever ran for president. That was true the first time. It was true the second time. Um, he is also somebody who again is light years ahead of his Republican uh, opponents, and and that's having all of these trials on the uh, on the calendar. None of that has changed. Yeah. All right, uh, you let us know what you think. More rising right after this. In a conversation with Piers Morgan, self-proclaimed toxic masculinity king Andrew Tate laid into Ben Shapiro, accusing him of being a warmonger. Let's watch. So Ben is a warmonger. Ben has been wrong on basically every single issue you can name. He was with you with the vaccine and, and every other war. Ben is always calling for other people's young men to go and die in some war. He seems to love it. I don't know if he has short man syndrome, but he's always behind his desk calling about how important it is that big, strong men like me go and die. And the reason he tweeted that and said that is because when Hamas and Israel, the very early in the conflict, I think it was three days in, were discussing possible peace talks, he tweeted, no, absolutely not, f them, kill them all. And I said, I said, Ben, as a man who's done his own fighting, because I've had a life of pain and violence, listen to me, peace is always worth a conversation. What I said is that we should always be prepared to at least discuss peace. He, because he's a warmonger, said, no, peace is not worth a conversation. You're this, you're that, da-da. Because he's always sitting behind his desk, he must have a booster chair, and he's always running his mouth trying to invoke violence and call for war. And I find it kind of hypocritical because a man who's so small he would die if he was slapped on the street, sitting behind a desk and screaming for other people to be annihilated, I think is kind of, it's worse than I actually think, I believe. It's insane. I believe if he was sitting here listening to this, he would say that what he's screaming for is for Jewish people in Israel to defend themselves. And all he's a Jewish ben man. All Ben does is call for war. And I agree. Defending yourself. That's not is, all he does. That's all he does. It's and calling for war and, call, and defending yourself is very different than genocide. Shapiro also appeared to be the target of a jab from fellow conservative figurehead Tucker Carlson, who made this thinly veiled burn this week. And it used to be our first defense. You would say, well, in fact, there was a guy who used to say, facts don't care about your feelings. He's changed his views on that recently. But, um, but that remains true. It's a classic Tucker put down. Kind of backhanded. Um, uh, he is referencing Ben Shapiro there because Ben's famous for that. 
catchphrase. Um, look, this is a. This I is, don't care about your feelings. Was around long before Ben Shapiro, but. <laughs> yeah, he. Well, he, he popularized they've, it. They've, they've been saying that since uh, probably the '80s. All right, I, I believe you. I mean, hell, I was a baby uh, in the late '80s. You but, came out of yeah. the womb saying seen, facts don't care about your feelings. And Republicans stuff. have been saying this for a while, so I'm like, eh, he kind of um, co-opted and flipped it for a new generation. So what we're really talking about here is a massive difference of opinion, and it, it's frankly, it's an ideological difference. It, it's having, it's taking on a flavor of a very bitter personal disagreements between Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, now Andrew Tate and Ben Shapiro. It's really exploding at the Daily Wire, and it's very acrimonious, but it's a ideological difference on foreign policy. The right is, in fact, divided on foreign policy, I think, in a healthy way. There's a debate going on about where the right should be on foreign policy. The old, the neoconservatism of the aughts of, you know, Reagan to Bush um, is, is not does not have nearly the unanimity among conservative thought leaders as it did at that time. It was always less popular among the actual Republican base and Republican voters than, than the elite Republican support for foreign interventionism suggested. There was always an undercurrent of, why shouldn't we spend American tax dollars at home? What business of, of it is ours if the Middle East is screwed up. Are we making it better by being involved there? Are we making it better by being involved anywhere else? How does this help American security? Why don't we put America first? Um, this was something Ron Paul really capitalized on when he ran, and then it was something that Donald Trump um, t you know, came to totally dominate over the Republican Party by, by, um, by adopting a totally different view. And now we're back, we're kind of in, we're not totally post-Trump, but Trump isn't completely in charge at all times. He's not front and center all times right now. He's actually been laying low. And we had a, 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 you know, a new war start in the Middle East, and conservatives are weighing in, and there's a, there's a split. There are people like Ben Shapiro who want to support Israel no matter what, and, and Ukraine, frankly. Ben Shapiro is on the funding Ukraine. That's the, the Ukraine stuff is very unpopular among Republicans now. The Israel stuff's a little bit more split. There are a lot of Republicans that, that do want to back Israel. I mean, I mean, there's a question of morally supporting Israel and agreeing with Israel and saying they're right to do what they're doing is, is one question. And then, but is it our obligation to provide for their defense at a time where Americans are suffering here and we don't you know, have enough revenue to rebuild bridges and roads? But whatever Ukraine wants, whatever Israel wants, whatever any other country wants, for some reason, it's America's job to pay for it. I mean, it's an age-old question. Um, there, there isn't a country that exists where people aren't looking to themselves first and what's going on at home more so than they are looking right. at their neighbors or what's going on abroad. Because they're the taxpayers. Um, that's their money. That's just, yeah, yeah that, that's just how it is. And I think that coming out of the pandemic, you see a lot more people who are buckling down saying, hey, take care of us first. I don't think that that is a Trump mantra as much as it is an American one in the sense that people who don't support and didn't vote for Trump are also feeling that. Yeah. Um, but we can't slip into an isolationist posture. There are reasons why there is support for Ukraine, largely because of protecting democracies abroad. We've, we've always done that. Um, the other piece of that is that we have to understand our role in a global society. America cannot afford to be isolationist. Uh, we also can't afford to be war hawks. Yeah. And I, I will give you that. I think that there has historically been, um, at least amongst conservatives and conservative leaders, um, who chose to, in many cases where diplomacy could have possibly been enacted, chose to go another route. And that has had long-term consequences. What we're seeing now is a schism that's been largely driven by uh, the residuals of two wars that many people consider failed in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
um, you're not going to erase that history. And I think that specifically among some of the younger um, conservative-leaning individuals, they've been speaking out on it for a while. Um, younger voters in particular have been speaking out on it for a while. But being engaged in Afghanistan for two plus decades, um, the amount of money that was thrown there, the fact that it's still not stable. right back to the way stable. it was when we left. Um, exactly. Yeah. I, I, that left a bad taste in people's mouths. And they are also looking at now um, what's going on with Israel and saying, hey, can we really root out, or can they really root out, um, can they really root out terrorism? Can they yeah. really rule out Hamas? Um, what happens if the rest of the uh, rest of the Middle East and uh, other terrorist organizations or unsavory actors end up joining together and getting in this? How long will America fund this? Those are real yeah. questions and real considerations. They also don't fundamentally believe that there will not come a point where Americans are called to act physically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when, if, if and when that was to happen, you would see huge backlash no matter what side of the aisle you happen to be on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. If Ben Shapiro got his way, we could very well be involved with, with ground truth. Not, you know, not to, to Andrew Tate is a, is a figure we've criticized on the show uh, repeatedly for, you know, his own personal entanglements with, I mean, he's accused of sex trafficking, I, he's accused of sexual misconduct, all sorts of things. That's got to be worked out. He deserved due process like everyone else. I don't know if allegations are true. Um, but, he, you know, he's not someone I usually or frankly ever turn to for advice or good political prognostication. But I, I have to admit, he had, a, he had a point there that you when should not... When he wasn't trying to, you know, balance out height and have some screaming match of who's taller and who's shorter. I'm 5'11 without shoes, so... So I was like, yeah. whatever. You, you are to man nobody's, fight. Nobody's weird. going <laughs> against you, Amisha. Uh, you're very tall. Um, you can you could put Andrew Tate in his place. That'd be that'd be fun to see. Um, but when he he when he said that peace should always be an option, peace should always be on the table. Um, I, I agree with that. And if there's a way for them to get peace, that'd be better because we're funding. By the way, we're funding the humanitarian aid going into Gaza. That's, that's also U.S. tax dollars. We're the, the U.S. is the number one contributor to the humanitarian aid funds. We're also, so we're the, funding, richest, we we're also the richest nation on Earth. Well, but it doesn't... <laughs> well, yeah, and we're very, being forced to be very generous. I mean, we have to... We're paying... We pay for the bombs that blow the place up. Then we pay for... The, the, the relief aid for the people who are victims of the bombs, why are we doing it? We're, we're, like, we're blowing up a bridge and then we pay to rebuild it. It doesn't make any sense. I don't think the American people want to do that. I mean, you talked about the importance of defending democracy in Ukraine. If it's so important, why can't Germany do it? Why can't Britain do it? Why can't France do it? It's their backyard. But I mean, we there, is a whole, there is a all-hands-on-deck all. Europe uh, approach to Ukraine. So let's no, let, let, act like they're not involved. Obviously, we are one. We are the largest contributor, but there are the, the European Union is also there. I think they should be the largest contributor. I think we should butt out of it. And uh, look, you know, if, if you want to, if people want to donate their funds, if they want to Venmo uh, Zelensky or Netanyahu, that's fine with me. That's totally fine with me. You can do that. I support your right to do that. Um, I just don't think pe people should be obligated to pay for other countries' wars, no matter how just they are. Um, and I question whether they really impact our national security all that much. And in fact, I, I worry that our national security is negatively impacted by being involved, as we found, as we've learned in the Middle East. I think our biggest question with Ukraine is going to be around uh, to that point whether how long this will last, because Ukraine could turn into a Cold War, for all we know. Uh, there's no yeah. quick wrapping of that one. So they're not going to win. Like... <laughs> they're not going to win quickly, that's for sure. And, and, and Russia's assault has been, um, has been slow-walked as well. Yeah. So I, I, that's a very different circumstance than I think what's happening in Israel right now. Yeah. Well, right. Israel is, I mean, we're seeing the, we're seeing the images of the massive civilian casualties. And look, I, you know, Brianna, Brianna and I argue about this all the time. She's 
very, I, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize her while she's not here. She's uh, way more intensely against what Israel is doing um, than I am, or is she, is she, I think, sees more legitimacy in Palestinian resistance. Uh, again, I don't want to mischaracterize her, so people could just go watch you know, what she's had to say on the issue or read what she tweets about it. She sees a lot more legitimacy, I think, to what the Palestinian and, and, uh, and their representatives are doing in order to resist the situation than I do. I don't agree with that at all. But I do worry for Israel's security and our own security at this level of destruction and what it's going to create down the line, in addition to being really morally atrocious and, you know, a lot of innocent people dying, you know, just because, you know, you can't, you know, if, if there were terrorists hiding in my apartment building and the U.S. government blew it up, I wouldn't say that was you know, justified, even if there were terrorists in it, right? If you blow up the whole city or the whole country, like, there has to be some level of proportion to, you know, what you're doing, even if the cause is justified. And I don't know, I, I think we're those, not Those are typical rules that. of war, yes. Yeah, I think we're not necessarily seeing that. So, all right, that was a far-reaching discussion we had based on a clip of Andrew Tate slamming Ben Shapiro. So, hope you enjoyed, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Is the Democratic narrative surrounding January 6th crumbling? Because after the release of never-before-seen video footage from that fateful day, right-wing political comment commentator Dinesh D'Souza seems to think so. Here is um, Scott Adams commenting on what he's seen. The entire architecture of deceit is crumbling. Feel it. What he's saying is that a narrative, in order to succeed, has got to have a limited amount of facts and when facts start coming out one after the other, facts that are indisputable, that you can see with your own eyes, that contradict the narrative, the narrative begins to be, become shaky. And uh, this is, by the way, I'm going to call it to some degree the 2,000 mules effect, because that's the effect that 2,000 mules had on the, quote, safest and most secure election in history narrative. And now we come to the January 6th narrative, and my question is, is it really crumbling? Let's look at some of the scenes that we are seeing that are out there now on social media. Uh, one of them shows a guy uh, who, is, who is evidently in handcuffs or restraints. And he comes up to the cops and they take the restraints off and then they kind of fist bump him and they let him go. So the first question is, who is that guy? Is he, first of all, is he a normal Trump guy? Let's just say that he's a Trumpster. He comes in. Evidently, someone's put handcuffs on him. He goes up to the cops and they're like, well, there are all these other guys around here. They're not handcuffed. So why should you be? And so it's like, listen, we're, we're not a bad guy. I will take off your handcuffs and you, you seem peaceful enough. You don't seem you need to be restrained. And this guy then joins the crowd. So if that's the case, what kind of insurrection are we dealing with? Hmm. Well, in case you missed it, last week, House Republicans, led by Speaker Mike Johnson, made over 40,000 hours of previously secret January 6 footage available online for public access. According to former President Donald Trump, that video is exonerating. He reposted a warning to those who blame him for the January 6 riot. It read, quote, everything you've been told about January 6 is BS. The real insurrectionists are those who framed Trump to try to stop him from ever being president again and who framed you as domestic terrorists to try to crush America first. They have failed, and they will pay. Hmm. So we talked about the new footage um, the other day. Look, I, I, 
I'm not one who's trying to totally recast the events of January 6th. I think a lot of um, bad behavior did go on, which was rightly prosecuted, including trespassing and breaking of windows and defacing of public property and people who have fought with the police. I have no tolerance for that. Um, I do think, now we've seen, though, a lot of footage. Uh, so this new footage shows people calmly walking through the halls. The police are, are letting them do so. I, this might be after, um, after the, the protesters had already smashed through and then other people came through. It is a, it's, and I, I wish we could just like watch all the footage and have it made all publicly available. So now you can, you have to go to the Capitol to view it on like a private telescreen or something. I don't know why we're doing it that way. Um, but they did, you know, they charged some people, some people who weren't even there, the Proud Boys leadership with, uh, with organizing a terrorist attack on par with like 9-11. They got like 20 years. And so when you see footage of a lot of protesters, not all of them, not saying it's all of them, calmly walking through the halls, escorted by the police or around the police in a way that is not, they're not getting any pushback, they're not being told not to do that. I think it does very much complicate their narrative that we, we watched a highly organized extremist attack on our capital with a with an actual goal of halting the election and that it was you know, part of this extremist movement, that it had leadership and it was organized and, and there's not, no more to question or see there, that just, I think, has collapsed. Uh, I don't think it's collapsed. And I would argue that, um, of course, everyone who was there on January 6th wasn't the people who were climbing on things, taking down um, flags and piercing at officers and clowning. There were people there who were just holding signs who were just there. Uh, I don't like think that that narrative, of the people I don't think that that narrative yeah. was one that was ever really lost. Uh, they focused on those who were abusive because those who were abusive and clowned were, quite frankly, criminals who were trying to effectively overturn an election. Um, but exoneration here is a very interesting term. We know that Trump used that himself multiple times. It was technically incorrect. Um, and this is not this is not a case where that video footage could be considered an exoneration. Again, there were thousands of people who were out on January 6th who were in front of the Capitol. Um, all of those thousands of people weren't ambushing and, you know, committing acts of violence. The ones who were, however, the Tiny ones who were, you know, uh, storming people's offices, the ones who were, you know, uh, bashing police officers' heads in, those people were the subject of the investigations. Now, the Proud Boys is a different conversation because the Proud Boys did organize they had several organizing tactics that they did via social media, which were publicly available. We could all see them. Um, in addition to that, there were entities that funded getting several individuals here. Again, not saying that all of the individuals who were right. funded by conservative organizations they organized the were there for violent activity. But that does not exonerate any of these people. I think that there is a concerted effort amongst the right to try to recast January 6th as, uh, as basically a tourist attraction to a certain extent, and that that's problematic. Um, but the American people recognize... One, that that election was not stolen. Two, that um, former President Trump ran around the country saying things that were untrue, and so did many of his acolytes. Also, that January 6th was a very destructive time for the American public. Now, are people looking towards today further prosecutions and further conversation and media coverage of January 6th? I would argue no. I think the majority of America, regardless of what side of the aisle they happen to be on, voter electorate-wise, have since moved on. They don't want to see America go down that path again, because the fear is that if people aren't held accountable for January 6th, that we will be very close to having that type of situation happen over again. And that's a very scary place to be. And I think that we should acknowledge that and that this very small snippet of the day does not eradicate the fact that there were several people whose lives were legitimately at risk. 
There was uh, so no disagreement on on the election. Election was not stolen. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, whose clip we played, had you know has put out a, that documentary that he referenced, um, asserting otherwise. I think it's totally inaccurate, incorrect. Um, Donald Trump was foolish to say the things that he said about the election, both because they were wrong and they served to um, make it less likely that he would ever be it would just elected again. It doesn't make, even make sense from his perspective because. It's, very clear that moderate voters and swing voters and independent voters in the states he need to win don't like when he keeps talking about it, and even though he can't shut up about it. So I don't have any disagreement with you on any of that. And I'm glad you recognize that a lot of the activity that went on there was, in fact, First Amendment protected activity. You don't have to agree with what people are protesting about to recognize their right to do so. Um, I do think the mainstream media and many in the Democratic Party have tried to so we're, we're trying to recast January 6th a little bit because it has been held up as, as equivalent to a, a terrorist attack. I think it was an embarrassing day. I think it was an embarrassing spectacle. Um, I, I was there covering it. What I witnessed was, uh, was not good. Um, smashing the windows of the Capitol, trespassing, fighting with police, these are all things you know, conservatives always said that only the left would do, um, only like Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa or something. And then, well, then they did it, and they really ceded a lot of the moral high ground there, and I think that was a, a big mistake. But I, I can't co-sign the idea that um, the people going to jail for 10 and 20 years or more uh, fits the gravity of what occurred there. I don't think it was organized. I think it was uh, the protest was organized. I think the, the idea to storm the Capitol was a spontaneous riot action taken because the crowd was hyped up um, based on what Trump had said. I don't think they had any actual plan to halt the—I mean, they, they, they had a plan to halt it. They, they I mean, not a plan. They, they succeeded in halting the vote counting, but then the vote counting was just going to happen at another time. They didn't on January sixth. They were no. They, it was a just because they were ignorant crowd, in their ploy doesn't mean that it. there wasn't one. Well, um, just because their tactics were not successful doesn't mean that they did not go there with an ideology to create chaos and mayhem. To I think it knocks down the idea that this was a, an organized and seditious plot. It wasn't organized well. <laughs> a oh. disorganized uh, plot does not mean that it wasn't organized. It means that their, or their organizing processes were, they failed. They weren't as smart and strategic as they assumedly thought that they were. But this isn't the first time in American history where we've seen uh, vigilantism go awry. Yeah. But a lot of time we see that. And also, the, you know, there's the question about, well, who was goading them to go into the building? Um, the, the Capitol Hill... Uh, chief of police was, you know, set to talk about how there were, in fact, some. Um, this is like not a conspiracy theory that there were police operatives uh, among the crowd, which is common for um, extremist groups. Often there are police embedded within yeah. them. Um, militia groups, uh, white supremacist groups are often, their, their activities are often closely monitored by law enforcement. In fact, half the people in the group are often usually law enforcement or law enforcement informants. You don't have to sell me on law enforcement no, you being know. shady. But <laughs> right, you know that. So... I mean, I have questions about the extent to which that was happening, too, because, the, you know, the, there's one guy uh, the day before who says, and we're going to have to go into the Capitol, and everyone goes, nope, Fed, you're a Fed. If you're telling us to do crimes, you're a Fed, because these very right-wing people know, some of them, a lot, some of them are idiots, but some of them know from their previous experience with militia groups that the person inducing you to commit a crime is very often <laughs> a member of law enforcement because that's how they, they entrap you. That's how they can then charge you. 
So I still have a lot of questions about but that. But we also talk about the mapping out and the targeting of specific offices uh, at the Capitol. If you're someone who does not work there often or somebody who doesn't visit often, um, I've lobbied there. I, it's still frustrating to get around to some people's offices. Mm -hmm. The direction in which individuals who had never been to D.C. before largely or definitely had not, you know, navigated Capitol Hill to be able to know, hey, this is the door you go into. These are the spaces you walk. There are a lot of conversations around what level of intelligence they had before they got here because they weren't just wondering around the Capitol. Like, that is, that's a narrative that is false. Well, right. I mean, they will say, or some on the right have alleged, in some places they were being, they were almost being, like, escorted by the police or by, or by people who were in the building, which made some of them think that they were welcome to be there. Now, again, that's not a plausible defense for the people who broke open the windows and barged in. And again, I, I am fully, I'm good to charge people commensurate with what they actually did on that day. I'm skeptical of the broader organized terrorist extremism charge that did did end in some really long sentences for a couple people. Uh, especially for uh, Tario, who used to be right. a government informant. Right. In indeed. In yes. In fact, that is the case. So, uh, well, we will continue to uh, see how the coverage of the new footage shapes out, and we'll have more rising right after this. Tucker Carlson's advice to voters still undecided about the 2024 election. Trust your gut, and if you feel like you're being lied to, you probably are. Let's listen. The kinds of lies, there are two things that make it different. The kinds of lies that we're hearing are not conventional lies at all. They're the inversion of the truth. They're the exact opposite. They're the mirror image of what is true. And anyone who has kids knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you, all kids lie, this is how you know it's inherent to the human condition, all kids lie. Even your beloved little Dylan, he lies, okay? But they lie in a very specific way. So you come down for breakfast, you open the cabinet, and like half the Oreos are gone. And you say, Dylan, did you eat an Oreo? And he's like, oh, no. You ate an Oreo, didn't you? Yeah, just one. If Dylan worked in the Biden administration, he would stare right in your eyes and smile and say, I didn't eat any Oreos. You did. You ate the Oreos. You ate the Oreos. And he would be so calm and unperturbed and so certain of your guilt that in your mind you would think, did I eat the Oreos? Maybe I did, maybe I sleptwalked. Because we're not used to dealing with people who can lie without guilt. So it takes a very rare person to lie in the way that we're being lied to. And it takes a very rare moment to see lying at this scale. But the final fact that makes this moment different is that they're not just lying, they hate the truth. They're offended by things purely because they are true. And some more advice that Tucker had for Americans ahead of the 24 election. Let's watch. Uh, here, the first thing I think that's really important as you stare down the next 12 months um, is, to, is to accept the fact that, it's, that all your senses are telling you the truth. A good friend of mine called Gavin DeBecker once wrote a book, the thesis of which was, every feeling, every gut level feeling you've ever had is real, is totally true. That your gut is the one thing that doesn't lie to you. Your gut only has your interest in mind. It is not trying to sell you a product or convince you to vote for it. It's acting solely on your behalf. So if you get a very strong message from your viscera, from your intuition, obey it. Take it very seriously. As I always tell my children, if you're talking to somebody and the person seems creepy, he's creepy. It doesn't mean you can convict him in a court of law for creepiness, though maybe you should try. 
but you don't need to. All you need to know is that what your senses are telling you is absolutely true. This person's creepy. If you feel deception, you're being lied to. So that's some Tucker Carlson advice for how to, uh, how to handle this election season. Um, how do you feel about that? You know, Tucker Carlson going in on lies is very interesting. And yes, all little kids do lie. Nobody wants to get caught up. And I, our governments and our politicians. However, um, for him to become the strong purveyor of truth is highly questionable. I think that we have the wrong spokesperson here. Mm -hmm. um, he was literally fired from a major network that had been sued for multiple millions of dollars for doing just that, spreading very well known that they knew were lies. And wow. they were doing that regularly. Um, and, and, and they were found liable for it. And again, had to pay millions of dollars. And some heads have rolled, including his. Um, I, I think that there's something to be said here about someone who's been known to churn lies, being the person who's now saying, aha, this is how you find a lie, but apparently could not call out himself or find the gumption to like not lie well, with impunity well, on his own. I don't agree with that. I, I think, I mean, Brianna said similar things and I've argued about with her about it too. Um, Fox and Tucker brought on people like Sidney Powell to make their case for what had gone on in the election. Just like every, you know, we bring on people on the show that I don't agree with, and we try to scrutinize what they have to say. And he invited her to share her evidence. But it wasn't just the people who he invited. And then he called her out for not doing it so. It wasn't just the people who he invited. He went on social media and he made several, um, you know, one minute, minute and a half, two minute commentaries related to election fraud scams himself from the horse's mouth. It wasn't just him bringing on guests. He was actually asserting these things himself. Meanwhile, in text messages to other, other staffers and other people talking about how much of a lie it was, talking about how much of a kook Donald Trump was, and acknowledging that this whole thing was a problem meanwhile perpetuating those lies live. Well, I think he pointed out example, like, I, I, I don't remember exactly what he, he commented on, but I think people can point out legitimate cases of election fraud without saying that means the entire, I mean, there was some, there's always some election fraud. I mean, there's election fraud on both sides, probably cancels each other out, not at all casting aspersions on the overall winner. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could maybe say there was some discrepancy between um, how he appeared to view Trump in his public persona and then what he said about him um, privately. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, you can disagree with him. I disagree with him on some things. Um, I don't know that he's... Uh, I mean, if you have an example, fine. I, I specific lies. I don't know about that. Um, I, I, I actually think he effectively, and certainly that one time, again, challenged the whole stolen election narrative when he called out Sidney Powell and she was utterly unable, she was unwilling to come on at that point. Um, and I also don't know, you know, I don't, it's not publicly known why they let Tucker go, um, whether it was due to the lawsuit or not. Um, I think it could have been for a lot of different reasons. And I frankly don't like um, the idea that you're going to sue a, a media company, a platform for for the things the people they brought on said, um, obviously they, you know, they settled and they had to pay a lot of money and maybe that will cause them to make different decisions in the future. But it seems to me consequential for free speech to, um, to, to sh shut that off. But what do you make about um, Tucker saying that, you know, Democrats are, and Joe Biden lying to this extent? I, I think you could say that, um, Joe Biden and, and a lot of Democrats are a little are out of touch with the American people on how bad the situation is with the economy, with housing prices, with the education system, with crime, with d drug addiction. Every, you know, acting like everything's fine 
Um, and that his poll numbers are just going to rebound because everything's so great. And we just have to explain to people how great things are. And then they'll love us and they'll vote for us. Um, maybe that's not a lie. It's, it, maybe they're lying to themselves. It's, it's really the lie they're telling. I guess my question is, what, what, because he didn't point to a specific lie. Because yeah. um, I, I do think that the framing of Bidenomics is a problem. Not because the economy isn't doing sizably better than it was during the pandemic. But when you're at the bottom, the only place you can go is up. Yeah. But in addition right, to that, I would argue that, um, you know, inflationary costs were staved off in America in a way that they were not in comparison to Europe and other regions across the globe. That is an inarguable fact. We did have inflation. However, it was not nearly where it could have been with out some of the interventions that um, President Biden has been able to put in place. Now, whether Americans feel this at home, I think that that's a different story. And in large part, it's because of um, leaders in their own communities, whether that is their their, their governors or their mayors themselves. Um, the, the cost of living and the housing prices are largely a local issue, not a federal one. In addition to that, crime, that is largely a local issue as well. I think that some of the argument here is misplaced by the people. I'm not saying people don't shouldn't be upset because they very well should. And a lot of people have very significant reasons why they are. But um, laying this all at the seat of President Biden for issues that are, in many cases, their top ticker issues are things that are handled by local and state government, not the federal government. That's true. I mean, I can I can point to a, a thing he said that, maybe I don't know if it counts as a lie, that was definitely quick, swiftly proven untrue when he said, if you get these COVID vaccines, you're not going to get COVID. Remember when he said that and all the other experts and scientific health leaders said that. Um, and then Biden actually went ahead and required you know, a million, uh, thousands of workers to get vaccinated, um, both in the private sector and the federal sector. And then it turns out it doesn't, maybe it's a good idea for some people, I think it was a miscommunication, not necessarily an outright lie. Um, What we know and what science has proven for a long time, no matter what the vaccine is, a flu vaccine is the same way, um, they protect against certain strains. That doesn't mean you won't get the strain or that you won't catch it. You could possibly catch it. However, um, you will mitigate some of the risks that are associated if you do not have the vaccine. That is functionally true. Um, Does it mean that you'll never get it? Absolutely not. I got vaccinated. I got boosted. I still got COVID. Did I have the effects of my friends who didn't get vaccinated? Uh, No, like it didn't hit me as hard as it did some others. But I mean, that's what they kind of fell back on arguing. Um, Well, they did argue how vaccines work. Okay, but they they did say they said not just Joe Biden. A lot of people said you weren't. I mean, the the claim was made from the beginning that, oh, you're not going to you're not going to get it. There's going to be small. Remember, breakthrough cases. We were told there's going to be a small number of breakthrough cases. That's why there are breakthrough cases. We don't talk about breakthrough cases anymore because, you know, at like, I don't know, 70, 80 percent of people got vaccinated and like 90 upward would, percentage of people all got COVID. I would also argue that it mutated quite well, a lot faster than people assumed that it would. Obviously, right. the first strain of COVID was very different than the second strain. Um, once it moved into those those various stages. I mean, it wouldn't be such a big deal, except they forced people to get the vaccine, which I don't approve of doing that policy. Well, they so then I care to get the vaccine. Well, no, they, they literally required people. Uh, the, the, the Biden issued a vaccine mandate that was later struck down by the Supreme Court. Right now, uh, military service members who were discharged military for refusing Military service members have had to get, to get vaccine. vaccines for generations. There are several vaccines. Well, now they're apologizing for making them do that because we because our recruitment numbers are down and they're inviting them back. So it seems like they realized that was a bad And idea. they're also trying to destabilize some of the fitness records because our recruitment numbers are down. There are a lot of things they're trying to change to get people in who honestly don't fit the standards of our U.S. military. All right. More rising right after this.
came up we've all been waiting for, including me, even though I'm more of a skeptic than many of the people watching at home. UAP whistleblower David Grush sat down with Joe Rogan for three hours to talk about his experience testifying on Capitol Hill. And of course, Rogan asked some of the questions we've all been wanting to ask ourselves. So when it comes to these, um, I'm going to bring it back to these, these actual entities. Yeah. Do we know or would you have an understanding of how many of them we're talking about? And the variety of them? Well, yeah, there is a variety, and we have a certain n number of, of different things. Um, mm -hmm. But the, like, total numbers of, like, what's interacting with us on Earth, I mean, nobody knows that. And, I mean, uh, that, But there's an understanding yeah. of some that they do believe are interacting with us, and there's a variety mm -hmm. in terms of there's, there's variables. Yeah, I, I talked to people who are familiar with uh, the biological analysis and everything. So we have... Some idea, not a complete picture, because it's like, you know, you know, you're looking at it, it's like, well, I don't even understand the physio physiology at all. It's like, what the heck? It's like way different, right? So um we Is have there at least a description a, of this physiology. Yeah, no, I was in I was in the room when uh, uh I be careful, I don't wanna uh, I was in Washington, D.C. with a very uh, number of senior people that work for members of Congress, put it that way. Here's the rest of Grush's answer. I brought the people who worked on that stuff to the Hill. I mean, this is why the members were so confident to put out the Schumer Amendment and stuff. And I, and I was like, please explain. And um, they went into all those details and stuff. And I remember, you know, uh, some, some of the professional staff members were like, whoa, like, like they were like in G lock. Right. Cause I mean, it like a total world bubble, um, it got burst right there for a lot of people. And so we, we have some idea. It's not a complete picture. I mean, it's just like, but you're not even bringing in the right, the right people. Like I think about my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Gary Nolan, which I started the, um, Soul Foundation nonprofit with, I mean, he's like, you know, Nobel level biologist, virologist, like he's the guy that you would want on it, but he's not on it. So I think we can make a lot of progress in our understanding once again, if, if this is more broadly studied um, in an open environment. Hmm. So my frustration, whenever we hear from anyone involved in the, in, on the, the UAP front, is, is that I always want then more details. But why can't you say, because there he catches himself a couple times. He goes, well, I can't say more on this X, Y, Z. Why can't you say more? Somebody needs to say more at some point. If, it were, if what's being alleged, there are actual, there are remains of, of um, physiologically different entities that do not originate on Earth. And they're being kept in a room or in a vault somewhere where I would like to see them. I, the people should be able to see them. It's always, so, so Grush says that well, he knows people who've seen them or he's able to, he's kind of doesn't describe them. I, it's like, it's not enough. It's so close to the information we want. And then, but we never take the extra step of just disclosing whatever it is, which I, I hope should be disclosed. Um, and there's always a kind of insinuation that I can't say more because um, I could get you know, in, in trouble or the, the government. Well, then who, what is the agency or official or person who has said you can't say more? Because then we need to get that person to stop doing censorship. 
Well, I think there's multiple classifications of uh, apparent secrecy here, um, mm -hmm. and it seems quite purposeful. The other thing is, I'm not exactly sure how much the American public generally cares right now with uh, with cost of living and housing and other things that are you know untenable in terms what? of what their do you everyday mean? lives. There's aliens. Uh, are aliens taking up the housing? Are well, aliens I... driving up the prices? Like I don't okay. know how. Okay. <laughs> I, there, I... there are whole memes across Black Twitter about this. Unless aliens really? are helping paying bills, like we're not concerned with whether they exist or not. Um, I, I did, I, 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 did I, not know that. It is hilarious. I, I will have to send That's some of funny. them to you. Okay. I, I think that, you know, at any given point when you have multiple people from both sides of the aisle at this point um, seemingly not being fully not fully exposing something that they know, uh, specifically uh, with many questions that have arisen around extraterrestrial life or whatever you want to call the beings that we don't really give a name to um, whether their existence, but also how long we've known about them, where they come from, um, that the composition, those things are important for our scientific reasoning. I don't know how much of our government is ever going to really tell us. Uh, well, I find that infuriating. <laughs> I think it's, so I don't agree. I think it's, if it's true. Is it's it a like national security the, concern? Well, yeah, if it's, yes, if it's true, it's like the most important information that would ever have been disclosed in all of human history, all of human civilization. I think, um, I'm, I'm not persuaded that it's something other than BS. Personally, I don't think they have all this evidence and they're I not showing either. it because they don't have it. It doesn't exist and it's not real, but. But then what is up if with the If it does exist, what is we ought to see, it's huge. But why would you, and I guess this is like deeper than his discussion, yeah. uh, what would the point of the farce be? To have these people who are like, okay, well, we know something, but we can't tell you the something that we know. Um, there may be some remains here, but we can't really say you know, anything about them. Yeah. What is the point in this dog and pony show that doesn't actually lead to a show? Publicity? I don't know. Um, I mean, they, they might, again, most of these people are hearing this secondhand. So they might fully believe, like I, I'm not accusing David Grush or anyone else involved in this of saying anything that they don't think is true. But it, a lot of this information even comes to them secondhand. They'll say, well, I, I know someone who saw, we have a report, or we have evidence that's been kept quiet about someone describing what they saw. And I, I, I fully believe those accounts do exist. And I, I, I believe they're being covered up by the government and they ought to be released. I don't think they will ultimately reflect a true finding of alien life. If they did, that would be remarkable, and we really ought to know about it, because it would be transformative. It would be huge. Knowing that there are it. not necessarily alien life, but organisms, that life can grow in other places, be it whether that yeah. is um, biological or otherwise, I do think is important uh, in, in our, in our yeah. study in well, general. I mean, they describe crafts as well. They say, you know, not just like, a piece of mold on an asteroid or something, that seems perfectly plausible. That doesn't seem so beyond a belief. But they said they've identified crafts, so it, an intelligent enough life to assemble an interstellar space object, uh, an, an object that can move across space, something of it, what they're describing sounds like something of a technological capability. That is pretty extraordinary. Or an intelligent enough human that just planted it there. Well, it, it could be that. It could be us from the future. Could be um, artificial intelligence. Like there are a lot of options. All of them would be would be major major revelations and would you know would change the scope of human society. We could learn from their technology. I mean, just, it, it, to truly learn that we're not alone in the universe, that there's other intelligent life out there, that would be. I mean, that's that discovery is something that a lot of people anticipate will happen one day. I don't know that it will. Uh, but maybe it's already happened and the government's keeping it all secret. That's very frustrating if it is the case.
We'll see. Um, and well, not from Grusha or any of these, <laughs> these others. But I do think that that information will come out. Um, and when it does, there's going to be people who've been waiting with bated breath for their aha moment for years. Yeah. So this is going to be a very exciting moment for them. I call it BS all the way around. So we'll see in the future. All right, we're too, right we're too skeptics. But even if it happened, you'd be like, eh, inflation is, is the real <laughs> issue. I don't know about that, Amisha. I don't know. More rising right after this. Today marks 60 years since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The Warren Commission officially found Lee Harvey Oswald responsible for murdering the young president. Remaining questions about what really happened on November 24, 1963, have long fueled speculation. And now, 60 years later, there are renewed calls urging a reopening of the investigation into the assassination. Mark Gordon, co-chair of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Aligned PAC American Values 2024, an executive producer of a new documentary titled Four Die Trying, might have some answers. His new film out today on Apple Plus chronicles JFK's life and the lead up to his assassination. He also touches on the lives of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Senator Robert Kennedy. Here's a clip, take a look. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living. People in power have misused it and now there has to be a change and a better world has to be built. The bombs in Vietnam exploded home. We cannot continue to deny the demands of our own people while spending billions in the name of freedom elsewhere around the globe. Here to elaborate on his latest project is none other than Mark Gordon himself. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So as, as we previewed, um, this has been a conversation that's been going on for decades. Uh, many people question the magic bullet theory, still question the magic bullet theory. Um, it, this is a very provocative film, especially at this point in our nation's history. Um, why now and what impact do you think it will have? Well, this project's been in the work for six years. Um, and we are um, we rushed to to get it done in time for the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination, and it's still an important topic because our country has still not come to grip with the dark truth of what really happened, which was there was a coup d'état where senior elements of the U.S. government killed the president, and we still are not able to talk about that because it's so traumatic and controversial. So when you say, um, you know, that he was killed by senior members of our government, um, you know, what is there new evidence you're bringing to light on that perspective? You know, is there is there something that because everybody has all sorts of you know theories that conflict with what the official narrative is? Um, what helps uh, tip you toward that explanation? Um, I mean, there is new evidence that, that that is out, but really there has been a mountain of evidence pointing to a massive conspiracy for decades. And it's just really a fact that this evidence is inconvenient to the powers that be in our country that keeps us from recognizing it. I mean, the official story that uh, a lone nut killed the president and then was killed three days later by a civic-minded mobster is superficially ridiculous. But it's what, you know, the government uh, 
put out the Warren report and the media has gone along with that. But I mean, there's been a massive amount of, of evidence. You know, so many witnesses have come forward. I mean, we have confessions from senior CIA officers who were involved in the plot. We have physical evidence. I mean, all sorts of things. It's it's not so much that there's new evidence, but that you know it, the the truth is so threatening to the power structure, and that even sixty years later they refuse to release the documents that the CIA is holding back because the truth is so unpleasant. Do you think that presenting this to new eyes, um, 60 plus years later, where there are so many people that are questioning um, what, what government is doing, questioning in many ways the legitimacy of government, but also looking towards the other the other individuals who you pointed out, um, from MLK to Malcolm X, uh, several people who have also you know been assassinated. Do you think that um, now, 60 years later, this information is going to shed new light to an audience that may be more receptive and openly receptive than it probably would have been years ago? Yes, absolutely. So Four Died Trying, which is the, the series that, that I have produced, focuses not just on the, the details of the murders, but what these men were fighting for. And the, 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 the causes that they were on, they were fighting for peace and justice and the end of empire. These are still very relevant today. And it, you know now we're finally able to talk about it a bit. I mean, it, you know, it, it's really, I mean, the amount of, of censorship and fear. I mean, the fact is 60 years ago, if I tried to say this, I mean, there were probably over a hundred people that have been killed to cover up the JFK assassination and, and, and certainly dozens more to cover up the other assassinations, all of which are state-sponsored crimes. Um, so the, these are, you know, really, traumatic things, but we if we're going to heal as a democracy, we need to be able to take a clear look at these crimes and understand the corruption within our own government that that created these and still exists today. JFK's nephew, RFK Jr., launched a petition this week coinciding with the anniversary of his uncle's death, calling on President Biden to publicly unveil the yet-to-be-seen government's records about the historical shooting. In a statement, he wrote, quote, What is so embarrassing that they're afraid to show the American public 60 years later. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I fully support RFK Jr.'s effort to get these records released. But it really is telling that even 60 years later, the CIA and the government refuses to let this information become available to the public, which really tells you just how serious these crimes were and that there, you know, how much there still is that they feel it's important to cover up. Yeah. Um what what is your hope that uh, you're trying to change the the narrative around how people feel about what happened? You know, obviously, so much time has passed. This is it was a formative moment in you know, America's uh, political um, history at the time. Um, a lot of a lot of people are satisfied with the government's explanation. A lot of people have had questions um, ever since. You know, what do you hope people um, feel after they experience this documentary? Well, you know, there's a few things because, you know, what we had was a criminal takeover 
of the U.S. government um, by forces in the, you know, the intelligence community, you would say the deep state or the secret government. And that those forces never went away. Um, they got away with this crime and they continued with, you know, decades of further crimes. I mean, that continue up until today. So, you know, I would like to see a return to honest democracy. And we can't have that until we acknowledge what's happened in the past and what continues to happen. When we still have a giant secret government apparatus that operates in, you know, with secrecy where the public is not allowed to view what happens and that conducts an agenda separate from the elected officials, that's not a real democracy. And it, it leads to all sorts of horrible things. I mean, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, countless other crimes could never have been committed if there was an open, proper democratic process. And you know, we still need to address this and understand why these crimes in the 60s still resonate today and not just as historical artifacts. Do you think, so do you think Oswald was not um, involved at all? Like, obviously, I don't reflexively trust government accounts of things that happened in general. I, I do, you know, think the, uh, Oswald was, a, you know, confirmed communist sympathizer, Castro sympathizer, had been to the Soviet Union, had a, had a Russian wife, um, had, uh, had, to me, ideological motivations for what he did, and the forensics have been pretty clearly sourced to him. I agree the fishiness of him then subsequently being killed is what gives rise to a lot of understandable um, uh, skepticism. Uh, but that part of it, to me, never really felt all that implausible. Well, I mean, Oswald did not shoot Kennedy, but he was a CIA asset who was sent to Russia as a fake defector by the CIA. And then he was brought back. And so he was de the designated patsy. And he, you know, he, it's the cover story. But I mean, the, the physics of the shooting shows that there were multiple shooters and that the, the bullet that, that killed Kennedy came from the front and Oswald was supposedly behind him. So, I mean, when you just start looking at the basics of the story, it, it all falls apart. And again, there are you know lots and lots of documents that you know that that show that you know Oswald was a CIA asset, that he was on the FBI payroll. I mean, these are things that we know, and that and that you know the real shooters were. I mean, in my estimate, there were seven sniper teams. I mean, this was a military scale operation. This was not a small thing. It was orchestrated by the CIA with military involvement. They brought in the mafia and um, and anti-Castro Cubans. You also have um, right-wing Texas um, elements involved that were aligned with LBJ. I mean, it was a massive conspiracy at the highest levels of government, and people have a hard time wrapping their head around those things. And um, you know, but it's important that people understand that because, unfortunately, this is how our country runs. And it's, you know, most of the time there, you know, what really happens in Washington, it happens in secret, in closed conference rooms that people never get a chance to see. The Kennedy assassination actually provides an opportunity to see how the system really works because of the enormous amount of work that's gone into investigating that crime. It's probably the most investigated crime 
in, in the history of the world. And through that, people have been able to pull apart the military involvement, the CIA involvement, the FBI involvement, um, the, the Dallas PD involvement, the Secret Service involvement, LBJ, the right-wing Texas, the Texans, the Eastern Business Establishment. I mean, it's a lot. And it's a lot for people to, to swallow. But you also see, I mean, the two-thirds of the people don't believe the official story. And you see the large fraction of our country that just have lost their the faith in media and government. And this was, in, you know, an enormous event that has really put us on the path to this distrust that still exists today. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the, the distrust. Um, I guess we'll have to, I'll have to wait and watch to see if I, I agree with you that 12 sniper teams and the involvement of literally every faction in American life um, all, you know, simultaneously conspired. But if you have new information to that end, um, we would, you know, people will love to see it. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oscar-winning actress and longtime progressive activist Susan Sarandon was dropped by her talent agency over allegedly anti-Semitic criticism that she made of Israel's war in Gaza. The agency, UTA, dropped Sarandon as a client after she gave a speech at a pro-Palestine rally in New York last week. In remarks captured on video, Sarandon told protesters, quote, people are questioning, people are standing up, people are educating themselves, people are stepping away from brainwashing that started when they were kids. She also lamented, there are a lot of people that are afraid, that are afraid of being Jewish at this time and are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country, so often subjected to violence. Now, Sarandon isn't the only actress to lose out professionally over her take on Israel-Palestine. Scream actress Melissa Barrera was fired from the franchise's upcoming seventh film after she made a series of social media posts calling Gaza a concentration camp and Israel's war, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. According to Variety, her firing came after she alluded to conspiracies about Jewish control of the media. Hmm. Uh, I should uh, disclaim that uh, my agency is also UTA. It's a very large talent organization that represents a lot of people. Um, so I totally disagree with the comments that uh, Susan Sarandon made and that uh, the, uh, Barrera made. Um, I think Sarandon made it sound like, almost like she's a little gleeful that Jewish people are feeling some of the fear that Muslim people feel, but of course plenty of Jewish people feel fear um, and, and, and do Muslim and do all minorities and all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. I, it, it, we should not... We should not be ha this whole now you get a taste of my medicine kind of thing is uh, is really gross. Um, that said, I don't ever relish people like losing out on professional opportunities, getting fired, getting getting um, uh, expelled, um, getting canceled. Obviously, it's a broad term, and we you know we get into well that's not canceling, that's accountability. You know people argue about this all the time. Um, a lot of people have taken the position that for saying um, anti-Israel or pro-Hamas things, you should be canceled. Um, that's not my view. I'm, I'm very against cancel culture. I'm with Vivek Ramaswamy, who didn't you know, want the Harvard kids to suffer greater penalties than what had already transpired. Um, you know, Susan Sarandon's been saying she's very far to the left and has been making very lefty, again, kooky in my view, but I'm not on the left, um, but lefty statements for a long time. I don't know 
who representing her didn't know that that's what she stands for. So it, it seems very silly to me, and I, I, I would not, I, I oppose her being canceled or in trouble over it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously UTA can pick up and drop whomever they want at any sure. given point. Um, we watched a, a lot of um, including me, but we, we watched a lot of people get. We watched Kanye get famously dropped by a lot of people after he made some anti-Semitic remarks. Um, her commentary is problematic, um, and, and there there have been people who tried to both sides. Um, what's Israel and Gaza, and I, I think that that is is hard for many folks to swallow, particularly those who are have being have seen um, a leveling of the Gaza Strip. For those who have watched um, from what we you know what we talked about a little bit earlier, um, the bombing of hospitals, uh, critical infrastructure, um, housing just come down, yeah. and individuals be displaced. There's a lot of frustration at seeing that because people assume that the firepower that Israel is using, the IDF is using, is um, being targeted towards innocent civilians. And a lot of people have died, many of those women and children. Uh, with that being said, I, I take issue with the way that she framed this, because yeah. there is no, okay, well, is, Islamophobia has existed for a while, um, and now people are finally getting a taste of what that means on the, with anti-Semitism. Right. That is a poison pill. It's yeah. also very ignorant. Um, and I take issue with this being considered a leftist ideology because I don't believe that that is what this is. Um, this is problematic. And there have been many people who exist on the left, self-included, who have called out individuals who have tried to create a damaging false equivalency. But also, there is a way to talk about uh, humanitarian relief and humanitarian efforts that need to be done in a war-torn region um, and lessening the attacks on individual innocent civilians uh, without in that same vein, basically saying, well, haha, like, look at what's happening. Look at what's happening now to these people because of what you've done. Or looking at them intrinsically as a problem and that now the tables are beginning to turn because we see activists in the streets. We see young people who are not buying hook, line, and sinker into the, the special relationship with Israel. Yeah. She put a lot in there that was extremely problematic. Um, and as much as I typically don't agree with people being let go of, in this case, I think that it was warranted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, it, I mean, that can, it can go so far. And people say dumb things all the time. I'm sure you know, I get three hours of opportunity to, to talk every day, and I'm sure I say some dumb things. And, you know, I don't, <laughs> don't want to lose my job for it, so I don't want others to either. And, I, you know, I got to be more careful. We, we got to be more careful because we're, we're actually employed to give our opinions. I, I, I'm, most, um, I'm most regretful when people get canceled or in trouble when they're not even, like, where it's just incidental. It's not even their job. I mean, this ha you know this happens to people who are just uh, athletes uh, or people who aren't famous. It's people who you know work at the grocery store, and you you know you you gave somebody the thumbs up sign or the okay sign, and then somebody photographed it and put it online and say, oh, that's a white supremacist symbol. You got to lose your job now. Even though like 99.9 percent .9 of the people make the okay sign, don't mean it in a white supremacist way, and probably have no idea that it has some white supremacist connotation. If you're one of the handful of like weird hate crime monitoring organizations that have projected that onto the rest of us. Um, that's what I think is so damaging about, about cancel culture. We have so much power to be surveilled uh, by government and by security cameras everywhere, and also to surveil each other with smartphones, with the amount of everything you say. If it's in a text or a DM or an email, is it's preserved. So 
uh, this is hardest on young people uh, who are still figuring out their ideas and you know, we all said stupid things. Well, that's why I look at Susan Sarandon's them. issue very different than Barrera's. Uh, yeah. Susan Sarandon's been at this for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> She's been an activist out here for um, humanitarian causes and progressive causes for decades before it was even popular. But Barrera, she is younger. Uh, she's newer on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, she's up and coming in many instances. And is speaking, I, I think, towards a population that, and speaking to other young people. There are a lot of young people who are calling this genocide. There are a lot of young people who are calling this um, uh, undue aggression. And I, I think that she's, I don't think she's parroting. I think that this is the vision that she has based on the worldview and the youth that she's representing. Yeah. And I just like, I, I disagree with it, but I don't care. It's not, it doesn't change my opinion about, I mean, I wasn't going to see Scream 7 or whatever. I haven't seen any of them. I haven't seen them since Drew Barrymore, so. <laughs> I'm not a big forever. horror movie fan. I wasn't going to see it anyway, but if I was inclined to see it, I wouldn't go like, oh, but the actress in it had a political opinion I don't agree with. That's probably true of 95% of the people that appear in all movies is they're, they're generally range from liberal to left. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm libertarian. So if I, ha if I was only like picking which movies I'm going to see based on the politics what I'd, I'd only see like the two really awful like self-made Ayn Rand films about Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> that, that's what I'd be limited to. I don't. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, also, the the Dark Knight trilogy, which is sneakily very conservative. Um, you can watch those. It's, a, it's uh, a good movie. It's great movies. Great movies. Um, all right. Well, that does it for us this week on Rising. We hope you have happy holiday with loved ones, and we'll be back with new content on Monday. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us, Amisha. Absolutely, I'm wondered to be here. Wonderful. Well, be sure you like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you can hear podcasts. See you later, and happy Thanksgiving.